All right, so we are going to be in Luke 22, 24 through 30. And what we'll be talking about today is say of greatness and the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bibles, want to use your sheet and go ahead and open up there. And it reads starting in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? How we typically define greatness and success is in large part shaped by a culture that defines the highest good of man as reclining at the table. We're taught and encouraged to be rugged individualists who strive relentlessly for achievement. And the people that we come across along the way, we're often trained to view them as either obstacles or distractions. Maybe they're helpful means to an end, or maybe they're just simply a non-priority in the grand scheme of things. And in our own way and through our own outlets, we often seek to recline at the table of our own achievement as well. Whether it be in school, through our grades and academics, in clubs or organizations, our jobs and career opportunities, our appearance, our social media platforms, our relationships, our gifts and talents, and even in our ministries and churches. But when I was a freshman here at Carolina, what had a profound impact on me during my first semester it was not seeing and being influenced by the multitudes of people who were determined to recline at their table and who were consumed with themselves. But rather, it was when a guy named Will, who's actually here today, wave, yep, it was when a guy named Will, who was a junior here at the time at FCM, reached out to me. This came in the form of a simple text out of the blue to ask if I wanted to go out and get lunch at a little hole-in-the-wall spot in Five Points called El Burrito. Rest in peace for those of you who know El Burrito. It's no longer there. Really sad. But as we sat there and talked at El Burrito, I realized that he was genuinely curious about who I was, where I'd come from, what my passions and interests were, and how he could encourage and walk alongside me. Instead of reclining at the table, Will made room for me to have a seat at the table. And it's this experience that the Lord brings to the forefront of my mind when the question is posed, who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? This dispute among the disciples is centered upon the question of which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. See, among the Jewish people, there existed this expectation that the Messiah would be a political liberator of sorts. And, the, and, the, um, and what they would be liberated from in this time for the disciples would have been the Roman Empire. And so, as the disciples have acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah, with this also came an anticipation of recognition, prestige, and the power that we would typically associate with being the victor of a revolution, or maybe even just the change of a political office. However, this was not the case for the kingdom that Jesus had come proclaiming. And it's through patient and gentle correction that he reveals to his disciples and to us what greatness in the kingdom of God is and what it is not. In verse 25, he says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. The kings of the Gentiles here represent greatness according to, the leader, according to the ethos of the world. It's a leadership and a rule characterized by self-service and self-exaltation. 
See, he says that they exercise lordship. And this idea of exercising lordship is that these leaders, they use their authority to satisfy their own wants and desires. They take and accumulate so as to amass power and pleasure for themselves. And in the end, all of their actions are inevitably and ultimately directed toward the end goal of self. And he also says that they're regarded as benefactors. Earlier, for those of you who remain service, Wes also talked about this idea of being a benefactor, acknowledging God as our benefactor. But what Jesus is calling out here is this idea of taking on this title of benefactor, that these rulers, they would do this and they would still be living in the pomp and the luxury of, of their authority that they had obtained. And so, and so the term benefactor here would have been a common surname or title that was often given to kings and rulers who had made charitable contributions. And so what's and so why Jesus is calling out this idea of being taking on this title of benefactor is that what was sought after here by these rulers, it wasn't charitable service, but rather it was credit for service. I think Dallas Willard speaks to what a modern-day example of this looks like. In his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he says this, One of the greatest fallacies of our faith, and actually one of the greatest acts of unbelief, is the thought that our spiritual acts and virtues need to be advertised to be known. The frantic efforts of religious personages and groups to advertise and certify themselves is a stunning revelation of their lack of substance and faith. And so here, this is how Jesus characterizes, this is what he says, this is how the kings of the Gentiles act. But at the beginning of verse 26, as he's responding to his disciples here, he says, but not so with you. And I really think that's five words that we need to allow to resonate with this, this idea, but not so with you. Because in those five words, it's this idea that God calls his people to live in a manner and a fashion that is remarkably distinct from the world. And this distinction has always been God's expectation for leadership in his kingdom, even back into the Old Testament. You see, he, God expected that the rulers and the kings of Israel, that they were, not to act, they were not to act just as the kings of the pagan nations all around them, but as God has set aside a people for himself and as he had set one who would rule over his people, that that ruler, that he would live in a manner which was distinct. In Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20, the Lord says this concerning who was to be a king of Israel. And this is how he describes how he was to act. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. But unfortunately, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that it was all too common that Israel's kings disregarded God's word, and that they were self-serving, and they were self-exalting in their reigns. And what we also see is that because of this, this led to their downfall, and it led to, um, it meant disaster for the people of Israel on multiple occasions. But Jesus calls this distinction, he tells us what it is in, verse, in the rest of verse 26, he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. This idea of being the youngest is the idea of becoming like a child. And I think in Matthew 18, 1 through 4, um, Jesus puts it well. So this is describing, again, the disciples asking this question. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This idea to become, right, is this verb, it's active. And it's not just passively thinking of oneself as a child, but it's a response of faith displayed in attitude and action. In the ancient world, it was a custom that age gave privileges. So to be the youngest during this time, it would have literally meant to be the lowliest in status. And think about your own childhood and just in general what, how children act and what it means to be a child. A child never seeks any claim to authority or power. They're not actively seeking after that because they're completely dependent upon a greater authority and power. And usually that's their parents. When I was little, it was a common occurrence that I would always be going on Home Depot runs with my dad. This was just something that characterized our, yes, I'm hearing like nods of approval, like yes, other people did this. Yes, and we would always go to Home Depot. And when I was little, I never remember ever questioning this. I was just like, my dad was going to Home Depot. I was going with him. We're going to hop in the pickup truck. We're going to go. I would just kind of walk around. Like, it's like everything was huge when I was little. And so I'm following him, completely dependent upon him where he's going. I didn't really ask where he was going, what he was getting. I just knew that I was with him, and that was good. But what happens, right, that as I started to get older, as I started to get interested in my own things, right, dad's going on the Home Depot run, eh, I'm not too interested. No, nah, I think I'll make my own decision. I'll decide maybe I don't really want to go. It's like, you know, maybe say, ah, dad, that's nice. You can go, but I'm going to make my own decision. I, you know, I don't need to be fully dependent on you for that decision anymore. Um, so you go ahead. That's nice. I'm good. And I think in the same way, in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, right, instead of that childlike dependence, that humility that just says, I'll go wherever you go, a lot of times we say, oh, wait a minute, God, I'll be my own authority. I've got this. Like, you can go there, that's cool, but I'm not going to go there. And really, the spirit in which we say this, it's a spirit of pride. And pride is the great enemy of humility and childlike dependence upon God. Andrew Murray says this about humility. He says, humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature, and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. And so this is what Jesus is talking about when he says to become the youngest, to become like a child. And then he also says that the leader is one who serves. But unlike the benefactors that he talks about earlier, this is not serving for the sake of acquiring a title or a recognition. A leader in God's kingdom is one who serves to serve, at any time or place, in any circumstance, and regardless of whether or not they will be praised. It is a very simple idea, but because of our pride, it fails to characterize much of our lives. And so now in verse 27, we come back to this question. Jesus says, for who is the greater? one who reclines at table, or one who serves. And then he goes on to say, is it, is, not the one who reclines at, is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. But I am among you as the one who serves. You see, we dare call it insanity that a holy and perfect God, the sovereign ruler, creator, and sustainer of the universe, would leave his table, his throne of majesty, to come and serve us. See, Jesus is beyond worthy to recline at the table and to be honored and esteemed highly as the greatest. But instead, he comes to us in humility, as a servant. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the beautiful reality of the kingdom of God, 
and it shatters the wisdom of the world. You see, Paul speaks on this worldly wisdom in 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 19, and he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. The world's wisdom on greatness is revealed to be folly with God because the world says that we attain greatness when we recline at the table. But Jesus shows that greatness is serving others out of humility. And in Philippians 2, 3-9, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The entire life and ministry of Jesus was characterized by selflessness and a divine humility that ultimately drove the Son of God to die so that we might live. Jesus, though he was God, lived his life as one who served to the very end. An underlying assumption of our culture that a lot of us buy into, whether we realize it or not, is the idea that I work so that I don't have to work. All right, I was in my personal finance class a couple weeks ago, and I chuckled as one girl proceeded to <laughs> proclaim her grand plan, right, of getting her job, this, uh, marrying this like, awesome dude who's going to have lots of money, and she would retire at 30. I thought, oh my gosh, retire at 30? <laughs> Who is retiring at 30 these days, right? Or maybe it's, I work really hard at the beginning, right? I climb the corporate ladder, like I start, I start low, then I make it to the top, and then I don't have to sweep the floor anymore, right? I'm not cleaning the toilets, I'm not doing the menial labor anymore because I've worked beyond that. But this is an idea that we cannot rightfully apply to the Christian life. At no point do we leave behind the humility of our Lord and retire from serving others. And Jesus goes on to say in verses 29 and 30, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The kingdom we have received does not operate according to the wisdom or standards of the world. And no matter where we are, our lives should incarnate the profound and beautiful gospel truth that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, all the great gift that we have received is the privilege of eating and drinking at the Lord's table. And our seat at the table is not an exemption from service, but it is the very reason that we serve. So the question I pose for myself and I also pose for all of us here is, do our lives make room for others to have a seat at the table? If you're familiar with 2 Samuel and David's life and reign, then I think the story of David and Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, in 2 Samuel 9 pictures this idea of making, room, making space for others to have a seat at the table. I think it pictures this very well. See, after Saul's reign came to an end and David ascended to the throne, most of Saul's relatives, including David's best friend Jonathan, were killed. However, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, he ended up surviving, but not without, but not without becoming lame in the process. And so as David has ascended to the throne and he's now the king of Israel, he learns that Mephibosheth is alive and he sets his heart to show him kindness and to serve him. Now, this is crazy because wisdom according to the world would see Mephibosheth as a threat that needs to be eliminated because Mephibosheth was a member of the former ruling dynasty. And in the ancient world, this, you just did not do this, right? They were a threat. They needed to be eliminated to secure one's place on the throne. But 
As a man after God's own heart, we see the heart of God reflected in David's service to Mephibosheth. In 2 Samuel 9, 7-8, through 8, the interaction goes like this. And David says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? If we truly see ourselves in a spirit of humility, we will recognize that we too can only rightly say before the Lord, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? See, none of us deserve our seat at the Lord's banquet table. And as such, we should always be willing to say to others, you shall eat at my table always. This is an extremely humbling reality. But the amazing thing about the God we serve is that there is not one thing he expects us to do that he has not demonstrated and exemplified himself to the fullest. Jesus, the one of whom John the Baptist said, I am unworthy to untie the sandals on his feet, didn't think it beneath him to lower himself to wash the feet of his disciples. And I think this is an account that offers profound insight into what the pursuit of greatness in God's kingdom looks like. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to John 13, verses 12 through 17. And we'll kind of land here. And he reads, starting in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I want you all to think about times in your life when you have been blessed by someone who was willing to go out of their way to serve you, to open up their lives and to offer you a seat at their table, like Will and many others have done for me. When someone saw you when you felt unseen and took the time to invest in your life and to show you kindness, Think about how good that made you feel and the impact that it had, how God used that in your life. Now, picture that, hold it in your head, that time, times perhaps. Now imagine what this world, what your life, and what our community would look like if we all did this all the time, if we all served one another freely and without restraint. That sounds pretty incredible, right? I think we'd all shake our heads and be like, that sounds amazing, need more of that in my life, correct? But y'all, here's the thing, this is not some far-off fantasy, right? This is what God desires for us, this is what he desires our lives to be like. But if we want that to be a reality, then it starts with us, all of us. You see, the sad and depressing state of much of our world today, and much of the tension and loneliness that we experience in our church communities is due to the fact that we are consumed by ourselves. And people consumed by self have no capacity to love God and love others. In John 3.30, John says this concerning Jesus. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I remember reading this around sophomore year when I was in college and really being convicted by his gift, right? In my life, right, am I too big? 
right? That John is saying Jesus must increase, but in order for that to happen, I must decrease. Because I think a lot of the, re the reasons that we find serving others hard, right, that we find moving towards this idea of humility and service very difficult is because we are too big. I want you to imagine, right, that this circle represents your life, right? And then that is your capacity and all that you're able to do. And so as John is saying, he must, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease, what we need to move away from is this idea that, right, within this sphere, that is how big I am. And maybe Jesus just gets his little, his little portion right down there. Very sad, correct? But what he's saying is that what should be happening, right, is that as Jesus has come into our lives, as we're allowing him to be our teacher to show us a better way, right, that all of a sudden this becomes reverse, right? That as Jesus increases by nature, I decrease, all right? KJ's down here. And now all of a sudden, because Jesus is much greater than I am, right, because I'm completely dependent upon him, right, I'm others-focused, I have capacity to meet the needs of those around me, right, in a way in which I don't if everything is centered around me. Because what me does is instead of reaching out, me takes everything in. And me has no capacity to serve others. So this is something that, I've that God has really impressed upon my heart during my time in college. Because you see, we're not automatically pros at serving one another. It takes practice, persistence, and a willingness to get out of our comfort zones and routines. But y'all, let me tell you from experience, from what being served and from serving others, that it is so, so worth it when we do this. You see, I think the biggest barrier of this kind of service happening among us as a rhythm of life is not that, right, it's not that we're not capable, because we are. It's not that we're not outgoing enough. I can tell you that that's not a barrier. When I, when I came here as a freshman, I was very introverted and shy, believe it or not. And I know a lot of you, I tell you that, and you're like, mm, absolutely not. But let me tell you, the Lord can work through that, right? That, those are not the biggest barriers. It's not that we don't have time, right? But rather, I think the biggest barrier is that the temptation is that we let the busyness of life and school turn us into me machines, right? We're me machines operating like this, drawing everything inward. And so I think there are some aspects of this that if this is going to characterize our lives, there's just some stuff the Lord has taught me um, over my time in college and in ministry, working in ministry, um, is that we need to start operating differently, right? Having a different perspective. And so I think the first thing is this, is that we need to start seeing serving others as our responsibility first, someone else's second. Because I think a lot of times the temptation is we see a need, right? We see a person, but then we say, oh, someone else can do that, or someone with the right title can handle that. And on Wednesday, a lot of you know I work in student ministry at my home church, and so on any given Wednesday night, there's just a ton of random stuff to do outside of preaching to the students and uh, having worship and stuff. And so a lot of it people don't really think about. And one of those things is setting up the tent outside, right? And so as the tent is set up, the tent also has to be torn down every night. And it's usually late, and we're tired, and now it's cold and dark. No one really likes going out there to take down the tent. It has to be done every week. And so usually the staff ends up doing this. But this past Wednesday, as I was kind of ripping and running, um, as uh, we had the high schoolers in there going through their programming, I looked, and one of our high school small group leaders was carrying in the tent. He had already gone, packed it up, put it up and everything. I was like, I don't think anyone even asked him to do it, but he knew that the tent had to be put up. Now usually Will, our middle school pastor, is the one who puts up this tent. And so I was outside, and Will comes flying out the door. He just looks tired and exhausted. And he's like, hey, KJ, can you help me get the tent? I was like, Will, they already got it. And he, just, he paused, he looked at me, he said, 
wow, a blessing. And like, you would not believe how relieved he was that the tent had been put up. And it seems like such a small thing, but see, what, what people don't understand is that Will has to stay there late every night, and he's up by like 5.30 the next morning to go to SCA for middle school. And it is very taxing on him. And so even just the smallest act of service in that way really was a huge blessing to him. And so I saw that, and I thought, wow, what a great example of, you know, we see the need, and it's just to take it upon our responsibility to meet the need of service. And the second thing is to train, to train your eyes and develop intention to see people and to meet their needs. See, y'all, it takes prayerful intention to come here on a Sunday morning and to come on a Thursday night and have the expectation of yourself that I'm going to actively look for people who are not plugged in, who are not well-connected, who need to be, who need, um, better, who need to be connected better, who need to build relationships. Um, it takes prayerful intention to come in and to do that and of laying aside of I'm just going to come and do my own thing and sit down. And we don't do that by nature, but I can tell you that I hope that lots of you have been blessed when others have been willing to do that, right? That that does take effort. And if we're all doing that, it's incredible. It's really hard not to serve when everyone else is serving. And third is understanding that the group of people you're comfortable with is not the only group of people you're called to serve and invite to the table. I can tell you that some of the most fruitful relationships that I've made in college and some of the best friendships I've made have been with people that, outside of the Lord pushing me to serve them or them being led and being obedient to come and to serve me, to humble themselves, to invite me at the table, those relationships would not exist. And I think a lot of times we say, oh, that person's not like me. I don't think I'll get along with them. They're intimidating. And really what we miss out on what the Lord has in store and maybe what could be one of the biggest blessings of our lives. And then fourth is this, don't let your own agenda or calendar dictate what you're willing and not willing to do for God. Now, I know there are some of you in here who don't use planners, who don't use agendas. You just remember all your assignments, all your events, social activities, and you keep it all up here. I am perplexed by you, truly. I do not understand how you operate in such a fashion, but that is not me. On the contrary, I have three planners, right? I've got work planners, I've got social life planners, I've got everything planners. And I love my planner. If you really want to play a cruel joke on me, you take my book bag and take my planner out and go hide it and just watch the freak out that would ensue. Because I don't have, you all think I'm kidding, I'm really not. But while that is the case, and I very, am very type A and am very organized, what's been a hard pill for me to swallow and something the Lord has taught me is that my agenda is not God's agenda. Right. I cannot squeeze the Lord into my little paper calendar that I keep in my book bag. And I think a lot of times the pride in me wants to do that. Right? I've got my stuff to do. Right? A couple weeks ago, I don't know if many of you saw, there was like this massive bird swarm. It was like something out of a horror movie um, around the church. <laughs> and so there was a casualty out of that bird storm, and it was Katie's car. It got covered in bird poop. And so the next day, you know, I was going to go take the car and to go wash it. And so I came by here, got the keys, you know, just walk in to the car, feeling good. And then I hear the voice, right? Hey, hey, fella, hey, fella. And I was just like, oh, who's calling me? Eh, maybe they're not calling me. And I walk, take two more steps. Hey, fella, excuse me, excuse me. And at that point, right, like, you know they're calling you, and you know someone wants you. But I was like, and so at that point, I had this choice. I was like, oh, man, I, like, I got to go wash this car. I've got tons of schoolwork I got to do. I've already planned out my whole day. Do I turn around? And then, unfortunately, you know, I tried to go one more time, and I heard it again. I was just like, okay, fine, I'm coming. And I ended up meeting an individual. His name was Daryl. And he needed some money, and I needed to go to the I had no cash, so I needed to go to the ATM. And he was just pleading, just very, very, very desperate. 
Um, and as we were walking to the ATM, um, I decided, I'm just going to take some time to just try to get to know this guy. And so we started talking, and what ended up coming of that interaction as we were walking to the bank, as I was like at the teller, was I got to share the gospel with Daryl. And it was such an encouraging conversation. You know, I messed up trying to withdraw money like three times because I'm sitting over there trying to like share the gospel and focus, which I can't do that. So that was encouraging. <laughs> but it was an awesome conversation. And in that moment, I realized like, wow, part of me really wanted to just keep walking and to ignore him because I had other stuff to do. And what came of that was that Daryl heard the gospel that is able to save his soul. And then finally, I think, too, is just understanding, along with that story and others, is that a lot of times, I know, guys, classes get busy, college is busy, life is a firestorm sometimes, but just always remembering and preaching to yourself that other people are more important than things. Because there's a very real way in which, right, I could make, plan out my week, and none of you would be a part of it, except for maybe seeing you on Thursdays and Sundays. But I know that, that God has so much more right, planned for us, that he desires so much more for us, that we love and that we serve one another, that we be a part of one another's lives, right, more than just coming and sitting in a building together and having, you know, and sharing this time. As sweet as it is, but that we would desire and that our, and that our hearts cry would be that we would desire to live life with one another, truly. And so in conclusion, just keeping all of those things in mind, just understanding that as we t- this idea, if we talk about greatness in the kingdom of God, that greatness in God's kingdom is not about titles and authority, but it's about humility and service. Do you desire to be great? Then strive to cultivate a life that does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and counts others more significant than yourself. This kind of life will probably not attract the spotlight of the world, but rest assured, your, fa- your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. Remember that we are a people who desire a better country and who look not to the things that are seen and transient, but to the things that are unseen and eternal. It's not necessary that we be called leader, pastor, family group leader, upperclassman, or any similar title before we are able to do that which Jesus expects of us. It's only necessary that we know Christ and have inherited eternal life in his kingdom. And if this is true of you, then the expectation of our Lord and teacher is that we follow his example and make room for others to have a seat at the table. And blessed are we when we do. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we just come to you in a spirit um, just of deep humility, Lord, understanding um, just how deep your love for us runs. God, I thank you, Lord, that you didn't think it too much to leave your throne of majesty, Father, to come and to serve us, Father, to love us, Lord, to die for us and to save us from our sins, that we might know your son Jesus and have eternal life. God, we thank you that you not only do that, but Lord, you, all, you desire to live life with us, to teach us, Father, to show us a better way and to invite us to have a seat at your banquet table. God, I pray just that your spirit, that you would fill us, God, that you would remove the pride of self-dependence, that you would remove the pride of um, self-exaltation, God, and of just wanting our stuff when we want it and being me-centered, Lord, but I pray that you would move us towards others, Lord, that we would see um, those around us um, with your eyes, Father, that your heart would fill us, your heart of compassion and mercy, God. And so I just, I pray um, that as we go from here, Lord, that we would find that person, those people who we can invite to have a seat at our table, Lord, knowing um, that you bless um, our obedience in that way, Father, that you uh, desire so much greater um, than what we often um, think or imagine. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would humble us. God, I pray that you would um, 
continually just teach us and guide us, Father, in that, in all that we do, that it would be your name that receives the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.